My name is Chris McGowan. I'm the CEO of Thunder Labs, and you're listening to the Thundercast. Is that how you wanted it? That is perfect. That's exactly what I was after. <laughs> I wanted that feeling. We are here to talk about the Conquest of Foy, which um, is a book that you wrote. Congratulations on writing a book. Thank you very much. How was that experience? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Why ever not? Because that, that's kind of the opposite of what I was thinking you were going to say. To I be wouldn't honest. recommend it. It's not. It's not ideal. Think about it. Like think about how many hours. Like it took me twelve years. So think about how many hours right, I needed to sit in a dark-ish place, literally and mentally, <laughs> and and spit out ninety thousand words. It's it's not. It's not an ideal thing for your mental health. It's not. It's not what your um, your therapist would uh, recommend. Isn't it, isn't it the same as journaling? No, no. no. Because you're writing something that's not you. But yeah, I don't know. It's. It, I would say it's different to journaling. Hmm. I suppose journaling's reflecting on your day that's just gone by. Exactly. You, you, you were yes, neither a, a saint or you know Harold Godwinson or. Um, William the Conqueror. So it's not really. It's not. It's not a biography. It's not a biography, is it? No. Um, hmm. Let's come back onto those themes um, about that and happy to talk about them. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come to it. The most important question um, that I've asked you. This is the second time I've asked you because our first recording didn't work. Um, Harold. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Yeah, it's good though. I, I appreciate doing it a second time. Okay, just for anyone listening to this, we um, we recorded in the whole hour, but for some some idiot me didn't press record properly, so we're we're going again. But it was it was a good rehearsal. I enjoyed it though. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, I, I I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was great as well. Um, I'm going to ask you about Harold. Um, let's talk about him and some of the things that I've learned. Um, Harold Godwinson um, was the um, English king. Um, 1066, Battle of Hastings. Mm -hmm. Did he die by getting shot in the eye? That's what most scholars would believe mm -hmm. uh, and would uh, put forward in their papers and the endless amount of papers that I've read. Um, although I did come across the odd alternative mm -hmm. um, ending. Mm -hmm. What was the word you brought up? Postulate. They, they postulated <laughs> different uh, endings. And mm -hmm. those are the things that got me very interested in mm -hmm. even the idea of writing it uh, took me a while to warm up to. But, yeah, I was digging around because I, I watched a – it all started in, in 2000 when I watched a documentary by the amazing Simon Sharma, mm -hmm. who was a British – historian and he did a series a bbc series called a history of britain and he literally started from almost prehistoric kind of ages and then took took it took you through a journey of the british isles mm -hmm. up until the current day and he did an episode on 1066 and it just captured my imagination mm -hmm. because as an aussie mm. school kid mm. we didn't get what you got mm -hmm. we didn't get the the 1066 history classes. Mm -hmm. We got very different history, so mm -hmm. it did. It did get me very excited. So I was digging around for years after it, and around 2007 I got started because mm -hmm. I wanted to dig into it. But going back to your question, 
Mm-hmm. I moved away. Mm-hmm. Going back to your question, I like the idea. I don't. Be, I'm not sure if it happened, but I like the idea that it wasn't Harold that mm-hmm. was struck in the eye with an arrow mm-hmm. and died. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that he was whisk, whisked away mm-hmm. and lived out his days in a monastery. Mm-hmm. Something. Um, you know, there's, there's something deeply appealing about about that that he would have been preserved and um, have gone to live in a monastery or something else. But and again, he wouldn't be the first British monarch that had been hidden away or whisked away or you know. Oh, there's plenty. Yeah, there's some plenty. Yeah, there really is. It, it, it's fascinating of all the history prehistoric through to you know modern times that that was the one that got you. Because when I when I if if I was to say to a, a random you know name a, a monarch um, of, of Britain, let's say. I wonder how many would um, talk about um, the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Not many. Most of them mm. would go to King Henry VIII. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's pretty seminal, right? The um, the, the 1066 time with the uh, with, with the Normans, hmm. and we've been thinking about. We, I know we talked about it earlier on, so we have to, you know, review with, with episode one, <laughs> <laughs> episode one that no one's ever going to hear because yeah, it's you know I didn't record it properly. Um, and um, one of the things that, 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 you know, we talked about is like the, the sliding door moments and how different Britain may have been if, um, you know, the Normans hadn't um, made their conquest of, um, of England. Mm. And um, we were saying before that, you know, it would have happened at some point, right? You know, the, the, the French and the English combining really populations. Point, yeah. They would have done it. Yeah, well, I... Going back to that point, if Harold had not had a falling out with his brother, mm. if he maintained his relationship with his brother somehow, mm-hmm. if he wasn't bribed by um, other nobles who were members of the Witan, um, or if he didn't bow to their pressure, I believe that he would have remained king and he would have won the Battle of Hastings. Mm. So... And Britain would have been an amazingly different place for the next 200, 300 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it would be much different today. Of course, we'd have a different monarch today, but I don't think it would be much different. You even mentioned, you even postulated that there was a, <laughs> that <laughs> we may not have gone through the, um, <laughs> the, the Reformation. Mm-hmm. But, um, True. We, I, I suspect you probably wouldn't have. I mean, no, the English Reformation anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, but... Uh, yeah, England would have been a completely different place. Because think about it, when the Normans took over, say if you're like a farmer in, I don't know, somewhere in the Midlands, mm. you, your local noble was all of a sudden a Norman, mm. you know, who was promised that land as part of their prize for going on in the Battle of Hastings with William of Normandy. Mm-hmm. So... Apart from um, well, apart from that, most English people just got on with their lives. But a lot of things changed mm-hmm. significantly mm. um, around how they managed government. You know, the Doomsday Book, which was fifty years later. Mm. Um, Actually, that is a complete blast from the past. The Doomsday Book was fifty years after the Battle of Hastings. Mm. Um, just, I have not thought about this since I was like. 14. It was called the Doomsday Book because its judgments were as final as the Judgment Day or the Doomsday. Hmm. 
So it was called it was it was like a nickname for it. It mm. wasn't called the Doomsday Book at the time. Mm. But yeah, it was um it was William the Conqueror's first go at I want to completely have a catalogue of everything that's in this land. It's quite significant. No other king did that. It was mm. quite amazing. He's the first database king. It's mm. fascinating. Yeah. So, so he documented um, the assets of the land and created law around it? Is every that... day, every pig. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was just insane mm. how much detail he went to mm. on that document. So it's my blinking thingy, and you think I'd learn from the first one why that's doing that? Um, Did we get kicked out? No, um, not this time. So um, he, so the Doomsday Book was fifty years after the Battle of Hastings, mm. and he was it completed in his lifetime. The Doomsday Book? Yeah, it was completed in his lifetime. Oh, okay, yeah. so he lived to be quite an old monarch then. He did, but his his kids and his grandkids were just they tore the, the nation apart in their mm. battles for power after him. Mm. Who, who came in after um, William the Conqueror? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my research kind of stopped after the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. But um, yeah. I think as Stephen um, and the famously bad John were not long after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Is John the one that Robin Hood's about? Mm. It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I just love it. Mm. It's, it's just so brilliant. It, it actually, you know, I, I loop back to something else about, you know, the, you know, you, you have to think of the advantages for the French king at the time to have, you know, these um, powerful Norman warriors be distracted with a kingdom of their own, you know. It seems to me that it would be, it would have been of his interest to um, stop having the friction with the Norman um, borders there. Um, and, you know, just extrapolating out of that further, if you think about, the, you know, Lutheran and Calvinist Reformation, just to your point before about... Um, uh, the English Reformation. Yeah. yeah. You know, perhaps the, Nor- um, the Normans would have gone, you know, east rather than north and, you know, possibly um, would have suppressed um, um, those things, you know, 500 years later. Yeah, um, well, they actually did that. They actually yeah. did go to Sicily and whatnot, so... You're probably not far from the truth there. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking about how... Um, so at school, I did Reformation history. Um, so I did. I was very interested in Renaissance, Reformation. Mm. So that's the, the connection there. And, you know, um, historical fiction is my favourite thing to read. I, I love it, although I'm very addicted at the moment to Adrian Tchaikovsky, the uh, British sci-fi writer. If you've never read this stuff, it's, it's wonderful. Um... um but I was going to come back onto why we're talking because we're talking about 1060. Oh, I haven't even introduced you yet. <laughs> I'll get to that at the end. We'll do it later. Um, <clears throat> um, I'm just fascinated about um, 1066. I'm fascinated by the Bayo Tapestry, and I know it's obvious, but um, we were talking about this um, earlier on. Now, just talk to me about the Bayo Tapestry, will you? Just so, remind, um, remind me, because I know you've reminded me once, but remind me again. No, no, it's okay. Um, so roughly about 20 to 30 years after 1066... Um, Bishop Odo of Bayeux um, commissioned um, tapestry workers to work on a 70-metre-long um, illustration of the story of 1066, which even starts with the previous king before Harold, which was Edward the Confessor. Mm. It's 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 available to see in Bayeux in France. Mm. Wait, where's Bayeux? It's on the east coast. Oh, sorry, west coast on the west coast. Mm-hmm. In, um, just 
south of... Um, actually, I'm not entirely sure mm. where on the coast. We can up. look that up. I'll look it up, yeah. But anyway, there is a copy of it in Reading. Ah, is it 70 metres long, the Reading copy? Yes, it is. It's exactly the same. The only difference is, funny enough, the one in Reading in the UK, because it was done in the 19th century and they were very prim and proper kind of Puritans, all of the little illustrations in the border, most of them, a lot of them were naked little boys or naked little... They put clothes on them. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. So if you look at it, you can get a... uh, You can see differences between the Bayeux tapestry and the uh, the Reading tapestry. They put little clothes on the naked people. So that was done, what, what, 1500s, you say, 1600s, for the Puritans? When was that? Yeah, so I'm just... I'm talking about the... um, uh, it's more of the Church of England kind of. Uh, it's not Puritan because Puritan was uh, 1600s, 1500s, 1600s, and the Puritan yeah. influence is there over um, Elizabeth I. But um, in the uh, in the mid 19th century, the, the Anglican Church or the Church of England had a big influence around, you know, like a moral view of things, you know, and. Nudity was kind of frowned on in art, so yeah. they put little clothes on the boys and the girls. It's funny, yeah. but um, that's the only difference. Is apart from that, it's complete, perfect copy, and you can go and see it in Reading. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, then but the Bayer tapestry, um, carried out in the late 11th century, is the best source we have for the history around 1066, mm-hmm. um, and it's still used. It's still studied today. Um, mm-hmm. And around, going back to your original point around, was Harold killed mm-hmm. with an arrow through the eye? Um, you could take that any different way, you know, by um, interpreting what you see on the Bayard Tapestry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it was written down, it would have been a bit more clear, but it's, um, mm. it's all illustration. Mm. There are some words in the Bayard Tapestry, um, mm. which we'll get to later when we talk about St. Foy's. Mm. Relics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, really. The uh, Bayo Tapestry. Um, it's like a very early propaganda piece, isn't it? That's exactly what it was. It was mm-hmm. them confirming this is what happened, and there's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would. I can understand why that would be important for them. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Like, why, why, why? Because the English propaganda was different. They were preaching even from the pulpits, not just from the, um, their own governments. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened and some even claiming uh, that when the conqueror's claim wasn't right or or something happened that didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. So they wanted to set it in stone for the generations to mm-hmm. come and the tapestry was the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. It was clearly obvious. Mm-hmm. When you say set in stone, you mean set in canvas? Or yes, set in <laughs> material. That's <laughs> falling apart. Yeah. 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 They maybe should have chosen a better material. Apparently uh, Hitler tried to steal it as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's wow. that popular. Like it, hmm. yeah, it was. It's, it's sought after. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what um, it would be fascinating to know, like all ancient text, art, whatever. Mm. What the real, you know, the real, the real story is. <laughs> yeah. You know, behind it. I mean, there's lots of um, guesswork around it. Um, mm. um, your your book centres around um, Foy, a. Um, yeah, so there's the relics of St. Foy, which exist in a little village mm-hmm. in a valley, in a lovely valley mm-hmm. uh, in the in rural France called Conque. Mm-hmm. Um, and St. Foy is a, 
fourth century martyr, mm. a 12-year-old girl who was killed for her faith and they kept her relics and her relics were immensely popular around that time, mm. between the 9th and the, the 12th century. In France, easily the most popular saints' relics to visit. Mm. Mm. And people who were travelling to Santiago de Compostela, mm. which is the Camino Trail, which is still travelled today by pilgrims, would go through Conk, a lot of them would go through Conk, visit Foy mm. and venerate Foy and then continue on to Santiago. Mm. Um, so um, there is evidence, clear evidence in the Bayo Tapestry that um, Harold Godwinson did swear some sort of oath to William of Normandy mm-hmm. and over the bones of a saint. Mm-hmm. So I took that and I started to investigate what were the key and really powerful saints mm. around that time. Now, it's clear from the Bayo Tapestry that Harold went home back to England across the channel, a disturbed and kind of battling man. That's what they wanted to portray, that mm. he went home knowing that he would have to betray the oath that he took. Now, why is that? There's a... There's a um, Someone who witnesses the oath points to the word sacramentum Mm -hmm. in the Bayer Tapestry and that gives evidence that there was some sort of relic there. Mm -hmm. So I brought the two stories together, the story of Foy's relics, which Mm -hmm. was famous for theft. Mm -hmm. It got stolen two or three times by (laughs) other monks. Um, What's that called again? What's that? Furtus Sacra. Fertus Sacra, which is the theft of holy relics. Yeah, in Latin. So, And it is, is an actual practice. So I picked up a <laughs> couple of um, scholarly books around Fertus Sacra around how monks would leave their monastery, they'd be sent by mm. an abbot, go to another monastery pretending to be a novice. Mm. They would stay there for years mm. and just gain the trust of their abbot. And once they got the access to the desired relic, Mm. they would run off with it. (laughs) And um, once it was discovered that the relic was stolen, the the monastery where it was stolen from, they wouldn't deny that it was stolen because Mm. they didn't... As soon as they said, oh, we both have this relic, it would lose its fame. Mm. So they couldn't say, oh, we still have it. They Mm. would actually announce to the populations around them Mm. It's been stolen and it's gone to this particular monastery. If you want to see this particular relic, you've got to go to this monastery now. Mm. And that would maintain the fame of that relic. Mm-hmm. So they had this it's higher calling. Yeah, it is fascinating. But they would obviously try and steal it back or they would appeal to the Pope to get it back. And that happened. And I touch on that in my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Do you think the same would happen in Australia if someone stole the big banana from Coffs Harbour? Yeah, that's a good one. Mm. <laughs> big banana, surely. <laughs> I mean, it'd be hard to stuff into your uh, monk's <laughs> habit. <laughs> I think that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a really bad mental image on that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I find this um, fascinating, this um, Fertus Sacra I'd never mm. heard of before I read your book. I mean, and, and I think this is interesting, um, which is why it appealed to me in reading it. I, it refreshed my memory on some things that I've not thought about for a long time. But also um, 
the, just the lessons from history about the things that you know have gone on for the for the church and um and um i was reading it god that's so obvious even now i say god that's so obvious i don't mean mm. that but it's mm. so it's so obvious that, that they would do that i mean really it's it was a i don't mean to sound cynical or skeptical but it was um, a money making exercise oh, having 100%, these um, 100%. relics there right if you had the relic you had the income mm-hmm. because pilgrims would come and they would leave money mm-hmm. and they would leave so it was all about revenue mm-hmm. i mean the story in my book is they steal foy and bring it up from um from conch up to normandy mm-hmm. Falais, which is the name of the town mm-hmm. um and it was all because the bishop there, Bishop Odo, mm. who's the guy who commissioned the Bayo Tapestry, I bring him into oh, my book. Right? Oh, okay. Mm. So he <laughs> wanted it in order to bring wealth. Mm. So it was all about money. Um, so, and I, I definitely bring that to the forefront about how corrupt the church was at times mm. um, around those sort of things. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so that, you've got a few characters in there, and you know, just going to replay this, so you can't. William the Conqueror, who's a, a Norman noble, mm-hmm. um, and the Normans I've learned from your book, or, or actually had reaffirmed from your <laughs> book, were of um, Scandinavian descent, um, a warrior class, mm-hmm. if you like, of mm-hmm. living France. Um, and then you've got um, um, Harold Godwinson, who um, came to the throne after Edward the Confessor, mm-hmm. um, although he was a troubled human because apparently he'd made some. Um, sacramental oath that mm. said he would give the throne to um, William the Conqueror. And then um, this thing that comes up in your book, which was new knowledge for me, the other stuff I sort of knew, uh, I didn't know, it had re- reaffirmed, apart from the sacramental oath, but more about Harold and um, William. It was Tostig, was a new character for me. It had never featured in my knowledge at all of 1066. So talk to me about Tostig his role and the the importance of um, of that. Tostig was Tostig Godwinson was um, a younger brother. He was one of uh, there's four or five Godwinson mm. brothers. Harold being the oldest. Mm. Uh, Tostig was one of the younger ones, and he was an earl in Mercia and Northumbria. Mm. But he was the family hothead. Mm. He um, we all need one. Yeah. <laughs> He would f- fleece abbeys of their money and resources, you know. So he would go into um, a monastery and basically steal their livestock, you know, their money, oh. their their gold, and just run off with it. And just so he, the the other nobles from the surrounding areas, kind of appealed to Harold, and they said, "If you don't sort this out, we're not going to support you when you try to become king, and we know that you're going to try and do it." Mm. And even Edward the Confessor, the king before him, who was basically a monk leading up to his death because he became a puppet king, mm-hmm. uh, even pressed Harold to go and sort it out, clean up the mess. And he did, he did agree to do, to do that. Mm. Now, he obviously agreed to do a lot because he basically sold him down the river. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of maintaining his loyalty to his brother... Mm-hmm. Or even instead of coming to some sort of bargain mm-hmm. where he could keep his brother but hand over his earldom, 
mm. over Northumbria, he completely betrayed him mm. and sold him down that river for um, the assurance of getting the backing when he would try to become king after um, Edward the Confessor died, which wasn't long after. Mm. So but Tostig's betrayal turned into Harold's end. Mm. Harold may have won the Battle of Hastings mm. if Tostig's, if he didn't have that fight with Tostig. Tostig got offended and betrayed and he fled to Norway, as far as Norway, which is amazing, um, to get to build an alliance with the Norwegian king, Harald Hardrada mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. and convinced him, I will give you the English throne, <laughs> right? I will hand it to you and I will help you invade England because mm. I know England. You don't know the land. I know the land and I know the way. Mm-hmm. So he convinced him, let's invade England via York, mm-hmm. um, the Humber River. You know mm-hmm. the Humber mm-hmm. River? Yeah. Yeah, so they sailed maybe 400 ships, it's been estimated. That's incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So Tosti convinced these Norwegian people to, to sail to England, sail down the Humber and take over York. Mm. Um, once that happened, Harold had no choice but to put off his standing in Hastings mm. and head north mm. to protect England from his brother mm. up in York. Um, and he clearly and evidently wasted maybe half of his military strength up in York. Mm-hmm. So Tostig is probably the number one reason why Harold failed in Hastings. It's unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. You know. It's a, a magnificent story of betrayal mm-hmm. um, and um, something that could have been really easily some, or cleaned up by mm. a built relationship or a f- fixed relationship. Mm. Well, I suppose with the uh, with the promise of the throne, you know, you can, you know, it's quite mm. a, particularly at that time. Um, I'm just trying to get my timeline right. So um, I'm thinking, you know, I'll, I'll come back to um, Tostig. Um, uh, yeah, Tostig and the Godwinsons and mm. Bernard Cornwall II. But it's the emergence of divine right, you know, the God-given right for a king or a queen to rule and um, you mentioned something when we did version one of this podcast mm. that made me think of it, but I didn't even get to ask about it. And, it, you know, divine right as, a, as a, an expression came after this time, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think. Yeah. I, I, and it's making me think, like, is this, the, is this the beginning, the genesis of divine right, where, you know, it's um, the, um, the, the, the king and the church is one, but the, but the king, did that come later? Did I, come? I think it is one of the starts because mm. um, around when Harold rose to the throne a few months before um, the Battle of Hastings, it was about him being of Saxon blood. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily about his approval with the archbishop mm. or the pope because mm. the, the archbishops in England, they were hated by the pope. Mm-hmm. Um so it wasn't really about that God-given right. It was more about the blood ties. Mm. When <laughs> William the Conqueror did win, he did win after getting papal authority to invade. Mm-hmm. So then that started to enter the language around 
God-given right mm-hmm. to the throne. Mm-hmm. So I think you might be right that that, it, that may be one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. He, because he had the papal banner, he had yeah. the, the relics sewn into his, his armour. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure what relics that were in, in history, but according to my book, it's St. Foy. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so I think that that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to be. Um, yeah, there has to be something in that. I mean, uh, you know, it'd be it'd be wonderful to go deep and explore that even more, right? About the, be. Be, mm. the beginnings of these things. Maybe we should write a book together on this stuff. Anyway, like an, an alternate history line. Um, <clears throat> but I'll, I'll come back to mental health and book writing, and maybe I don't want to do that because I've got a few things on. Um, this this period in history, King Canute, um, uh, Edward the Confessor. You know, is around the time that you know it's about the end of um, the Last Kingdom series by um, Bernard, Bernard Cornwall. Cornwall. Yep, and you can see some of those characters, and you see the the the, the Godwinsons as um, shadowy characters in the uh, in the in the you know behind the monarchy even then. Must have been a fascinatingly powerful family. I wonder if they're around today still, the Godwinsons. <laughs> it wouldn't know? surprise me. But they were wielding the, the, the strings of power around King Canute's time and definitely Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor became a puppet king because of the power of the Godwinsons. Mm-hmm. Um, and he chose to be we are like a monk. Oh, right. I thought you said yes. I have press record now. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Do you think in that time everyone drank mead? Yeah, there would have been a mead or a type of ale. I called it ale in my book. Mm. But that's because we don't really know. Mm. But there definitely would have been mead. Mm. But there would, I believe there would have been some sort of ale. I don't know if there's evidence to that. Mm. I don't think whiskey was invented or stills. Scottish probably had it. No, not by 1066. Surely not that far back. There wouldn't have been steel technology. I actually don't know. I've got no idea. I've not looked into that. You know, um, there's this restaurant on Carrington Street called uh, Vinnie da Vinnie. Hmm. And um, I drank some <clears throat> wine there recently from Georgia. And um, I'm pretty sure they were saying to me that Georgians may have been the first to have wine or to make wine. That's a big call. 2000 BC. I, Everyone do I a fact check on that. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a big call. That is a big call. To mm. actually have wine, um, grape juice fermented to mm. an alcoholic base. Yeah. Okay. Um, Philippe or Raph, if you've made it this far into our podcast, please confirm or deny that the Georgians were first 2000 BC. I'm not going to dispute that at no, all because no. I might get beaten up. My, my wine expert friends listen to this. They own the restaurant. Okay, great. They own the restaurant. I've been to Vinny. I, I recommend it. They're... Um, not only wine connoisseurs, but um, history adventurers. They've travelled all around these places. It's beautiful. It's your kind of jam, actually, you know. That is my jam. Yeah, they go to places, try the wine, and believe in the history of, you know, whatever. And um, I was even talking about them. I always say this wrong. Compasta de Santa Diego. Compasta de Santa Diego. Don't laugh at me. I can tell you. No, no, what are you trying to say? The place of Santiago, you know. So Santiago de Compostela. That's what I said. <laughs> Oh, you said pasta. I was talking about Finnish. No, no, that's the Italian guy, not the Spanish one. <laughs> that's great. Um, Santiago de Compostela is a pilgrimage site in the uh, far west coast, northwest coast of Spain, where pilgrims go and they go through the village of Conque, where, where Foy is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. A lot of them do get, not all of them, because there's multiple different um, routes that you can do to get to Santiago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish I had some deep academic reason for asking you if they were drinking a mead in 1066, but oh, it was yeah. more just because I just poured myself a beer. That's right. Because um, I was thinking, I wonder what they drank back then. They're probably drinking out of um, goat's horns. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm Short of some sort of, uh, I don't yeah. know, beer chugging. Thing. I was <laughs> thinking of like something out of Oktoberfest. Yeah, it wasn't Weedle glasses, that's for sure. No, that's right. Um, okay, so back to the um, uh, topic at hand. Um, writing books. When we um, did our first version, I'm just going to repeat some of these themes because, you know. I vaguely remember saying oh, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go back to the first podcast and then uh, that we didn't record. Okay. Because I forgot oh. to press record. And then I'll come back to the okay, next you go. Okay. You said, seek out mentorship and leadership. You said, feed it, because if there's no tears in the writer, there's no tears on the page. Mm-hmm. I love that, by the way. You said, um, remove distractions, forced focus, and um, something about it being um, an escape. And there was a whole load of other stuff we talked around business for that. Let's start with the first point. Oh, oh. I, that's not my question. Oh, sorry. It's okay. We'll come back to those in the first point. <laughs> my question is, like, how hard is it to write a book? Um, you know, you, you, you've said that it's not good for mental health. And sorry, you're okay day today, by the way, in case you've never listened to this. It's very, it's very timely. Um, Are you? Yeah, mostly I am. Okay. But, I, but I also authentically, you know, I struggle mm. with stuff. I'm a mm, same. creative, troubled person just like the next human. Um, I don't think you can be a creative person without some sort of occasional struggle. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to no, you. I just wonder if, I, you know, the, the outlet is, in, is, the, is, is in the necessary form of expression. You know, like, so the book, um, I know I jokingly said everyone has a, book in them and um i think i even misquoted you saying you said that but you didn't say that mm. um like um how hard is it like is and, and do you have to get it done if, 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 if you're of that mindset do you have to get it done yeah well as someone who an author is is just someone who struggles with writing mm-hmm. and just managed to finish so like i i'm no perfect writer do you know mm. what i mean so but i just wanted to have this done, um, but I wanted to have it done authentic, authentically, mm-hmm. you know. So <laughs> I wanted to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I got some help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some people around me mm-hmm. who told me when it was crap, mm. and who guided me to, to be in a particular state when I write in order for the writing to be of some use. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the golden rule of writing is just write, just get it on the paper mm-hmm. and edit it later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it took me 12 years to write and two years to edit um, and another year to pitch. Mm-hmm. So um, it did take a lot out of me and it does take a lot out of people, I can understand. And a lot of people who write, most people I've met who write did struggle with mental health mm-hmm. um, challenges in their time of writing mm-hmm. so it is it is a difficult but i yeah i do believe that you've got to have some sort of outlet and that is something that i definitely have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as an outlet mm-hmm. yeah, i think the thing that connects you know not 
trying to draw too long a bow as we're talking about Harold mm. and the arrow and the eye, but it seems like an appropriate Lots expression. Bows. It's a yeah. good, good, good expression. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Lots yeah. of bows. <laughs> you know, I think creating a business is an exercise in um, creativity, um, but it's also an exercise in fortitude and delayed gratification. Um, and there's some of the podcasts on this that I've done with um, Gus Janssen, who's a psychologist friend of mine, um, and delayed gratification, in your case, after writing a book for 12 years, two years of edit, you know, one, one year, year of pitching. pitching. Yeah, that's, that's, that's delayed gratification. Um, and I, so, you know, so that that's on my mind, and we'll, we'll come to that. Um, but also, you know, those things that you said about those five things there, seek out mentorship, and really feel it, which makes it a passion removing distractions and almost being forced into getting this done they also feels like lessons for business for me you know um they really do they really something visceral about those things for me um and you know what what, what you're making me think um it's an accident that i invited you here i just met you and i was reading those books the 22 books i read in three months because i was addicted to mm. historical fiction and then you said i've got a book and i said i'll, I'll read your book that's right. That was about a year ago or two years ago. <laughs> no, it was not. How long ago? Um, anyway. But, but you know, the accident is that these themes that you're talking about are, are visceral for me and they're the, the, the things I have to remind myself of. And there's some stuff, to be honest, that I'm not doing that well. Like, I don't seek mentorship or leadership. I find, I find it really hard to find people that um, I can get genuine advice from um, I, I really struggle with it, and and not because I haven't got good people around me, but it, it's really difficult to, you know, what they say, opinions like arseholes, everyone's got one. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I just want people to be, and I've said this before, I don't want them to be, you know, um, it's, it's some thinking that I have around um, advisors and advice and mentors, you know. But you mentioned in your last episode mm-hmm. that advice costs. Most of the time. Yeah, advice costs. Mm. Yeah. Good advice. Costs. Do you say that because you think that we should pay for good advice? Yeah. Well, I going back to your point, and I mean, you mentioned it yourself in your last episode is, and I, I definitely felt that I wasn't cutting it in my writing earlier on. Mm-hmm. So I did reach out to um, a writing association mm-hmm. and paid for mentorship hmm. and it was a really good investment mm-hmm. um and it's it's something that will definitely still help me today mm-hmm. um and it needed to be someone that i didn't know mm-hmm. because a lot of the times if you seek advice from people that you do know it's going to cut them or cut you mm-hmm. it's not always going to work that's my experience mm-hmm. um so having someone that i didn't know i trusted them to be honest with me and not need to keep my friendship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this particular lady was fantastic mm-hmm. she tore my writing apart which I'm grateful <laughs> for she no, she really did she tore yeah, it apart thanks so much yeah no <laughs> no it was really good and I think we need that like I, I am um, still I still consider myself an amateur mm. around uh, writing so mm. yeah what are you gonna write next Definitely something, mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to take my time. Um, I still have <laughs> another 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not going to be 13 years um, because my kids are older now. My kids are teenagers. They, mm-hmm. I started when my firstborn was born. So, 
um, not a best time to have young kids and trying to write a book. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd like to um, keep to that medieval kind of feel. Um, I'm drawn to it. Mm. I'm drawn to the Middle Ages. I'm drawn to the superstition. People really, um, their, their imagination, their minds, their devotion was so caught up by mm. um, some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that we wouldn't buy today, yeah. or most people wouldn't. So I'm, I'm fascinated by devotion that's mm-hmm. just blind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to write about that. Mm. Actually, I think that um, you're onto something there. I mean, go 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 medieval. <laughs> Is that a line from Pulp Fiction? Yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> you say that people wouldn't buy that, but they're buying different stuff today. So true. It's, yeah. it's the human condition to believe or need to believe in something bigger mm. than ourselves. You know, um, even even me. I mean, I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, mm. SMBR, SBNR. Um, I like that. It's a real category. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm I'm of faith, but um, I'm skeptical and cynical of institution. Mm. Um, be, just because I mean, it's not just religious institutions. It could be any institution. Just because I think they're corrupt um, mm. doesn't mean though that they're not right. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist and stand for something. I don't believe in tearing down all that we have. I mean, what would you replace it with anyway? Mm. Um, so you know, it's it's interesting that you point back to a period a thousand years ago as a, a place of reference, but. but but time hasn't things haven't changed that much. Which yeah. it's, it's still so important for us. Yeah, I can't disagree with you though. Mm. Um, I mean, we spend people are spending like eight hours a day on their phones. Mm-hmm. So, and back then, people were spending eight hours a day praying at shrines. You know, at bones. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I mean, at least they rhyme bones and phones. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing. <laughs> that's a good point. But yeah, when you when you think about, it, we basically do worship. Um, Technology and our phones and information. Mm. False so idols. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's not much different to the Middle Ages. You're absolutely right there. Mm. Um, I guess I'm just fascinated by it because it's so far from me mm. in, in time and also in, you know, across the other side of the world. Mm. So I want to write about it. Mm. Did you travel to Normandy? Did you manage to get there? And So I, I, I travelled all of the, the key sites of 1066 in England. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't make it to Normandy. I was in Paris and uh, my wife and I uh, visited Hastings and mm. I dragged her around to um, a few of the other key points mm. uh, in England. So, um, but yeah, that's that's what got me started. That was in 2006 and I started writing in 2007. Mm. So, um, yeah. You know, it's, um, I was reading um, the Bernard Cornwell series on Sharp. Um, which I loved. That's the book, mm. 22 books I mentioned. Wow. And um, his, um, <laughs> I'm really inspired to do something like that because, you know, he, uh, the, the first half of them are set in, in India and, you know, he traveled around them, those sites. People don't know about that. It's about, um, I, I didn't know about it until I read it, by the way. So I didn't know anything until a few yeah, months ago. wealthy writers, they get to travel before <laughs> they write. Well, he, he didn't start that way, did he? No. He started in, um, you know, you talk about a 12-year experience for you. He started in 1979 and um, he's still going and that was it came yeah, out in 1980. Yeah, he is fascinating. You know, you're talking 40, 50 years of writing and the Sharp series was still going after 32 years. So, wow. you know, you've still, you've still got another 20 years to go. It's good to know. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> 
But um, so it, it's more that, um, you know, he was a destitute writer and moved to the US and started writing there. The, the, uh, and these aren't, they aren't sequential in the, in the order he wrote them. But the his desire to go to places and study the place and the you know the the, the geography of the of the region and the and the buildings which I, I find that fascinating mm. and I think this is something and I, I can't remember if we covered in this podcast or the, the first one I failed to record but I, I just feel that I you know a historical fiction book is not the type of book that I could write I mean I mean I'm, I'm ready enough. But um, I feel like I'd be much better at making something up, like a fantasy book or mm. a science fiction book. Actually, even science fiction these days, when I think about it, I mean, I, maybe I could do space wizards or fantasy. <laughs> but you know, I like I, that. I, yeah, I, I couldn't do I couldn't do sci-fi or historical fiction. But they're the ones that I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to the you know the the past and the replay of that. I'm drawn to a possibility of the future more than anything else. Like I can't read Lord of the Rings, for example. I like the movies, yeah. but can't read the books. Is that because you do want something to like something that ties you to reality? That's a good question. Because that's so. what it does for me. No, it does mm. for me because I, like you, I, you know, I devour historical fiction. I probably devour more history, nonfiction, mm. because I want something that's real. Mm. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I love Lord of the Rings and all the, a lot of the fantasy stuff, but mm. I do want something that's real, like the Dan Brown stuff we talked about in our first attempt. Mm -hmm. Dan Brown, <laughs> it's real stuff. You can go and visit this stuff, like it's real. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff in Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci Code and stuff. It's it's amazing that you can actually jump on a plane, see all of this stuff, mm -hmm. and that's what I wanted to do with with um, a Conquest of Foyers. I wanted to have something that's really you can you can go and visit um mm. and uh yeah so the whole method of fertis sacra or stealing sacraments is real saint foy's relics are really there in conch in france mm -hmm. battle of hastings really happened everything is there mm. it's just a few things that i changed just to, mm. you know yeah it's, it's creative it's, license it, you are. It's it's fascinating. I, I don't know if people anyone listening to this list reads historical historical fiction, but it's a it's a fascinating genre to uh, to read. And I hope you arrive at something um, interesting next for you. But but without prostituting your health, mental health, to to actually uh, to uh, to actually get there. Um, and again, it's a, it's an area that um, I I would love to do, but I, I just don't know. I've got it in me to to write a book on it. Um, you said to me earlier on, um, no tears um, in the writer, no tears on the page. I love that expression. Is that your expression? No, it's not. And it's no tears in the reader. Oh, crap. It's close. Um, no, no, it's tears not mine. Writer, I can't quote no it right now. But no I'm sure you could the, Google it and find it. Who no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Is that right? Mm. Mm. It's a really beautiful thing. Well, it's true. Um, I needed to go to different mental places. Like it's like the, the key method for a writer is to go there mm. mentally to taste to feel to smell um to see every little thing that's an insignificant thing that's happening in a scene before you talk mm. about the particulars you know the snow the wind the smell of sewerage mm. you know all those kind of things you need to go there but more than that you need to experience what they're experiencing mentally mm. now there were times where i would 
because I often wrote in aeroplanes, mm-hmm. I would come off an aeroplane and I'd be sweating because I experienced what I was writing and yeah. I was feeling it. And that may say, sound mystical and that's okay, um, but it's just me mentally turning up to a place as though I'm watching it in a film. Most of my book is written as though I was watching it in a film. Mm. Um, and, you, yeah, you experience it. Like we all go to movies and we come away like we've been there. Mm-hmm. It's no different when you're writing. You need to go there in that place in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's actually, you know, you say it's mystical. It's, um, it's actually deeply compelling to think about it that way. I, I think that, um, you know, having read a series of books, then meeting you, and then reading the book actually increased my enjoyment of the book. Wow. Without... Knowing you that deeply before, mm. you know, before before committing to, I mean, when I when I make a commitment, I'm in. Right? It's done. Even if it takes me time to get to it, I'm in. And um, I, I, it made me enjoy it more. But it, but it's also made me think about what you're saying about the, the, this mystical thing of taking your place to um, a position of experiencing the things that you want to write about. And uh, that, that's actually quite a powerful thought. It's it's, it's very powerful actually. And, yeah. and, and I'm thinking about the work that. You know that we do around um, not, not about work because it's not really about work. <laughs> Obviously, mm. this podcast has nothing to do with what mm. I do for work. Um, but, but you know, the message I'm trying to convey, the the convictions I have in business and 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 relationships, and what's important to me, like it's important to me, and I, I want it to appear in my work. And I do a lot of visual content, as you've, you've probably seen. Um, and, I, and I write things very imperfectly, very often. Actually, uh, you know, I publish stuff mm. spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes, and people see. But I, I still, I still do it. It's probably a real version of me. And it's really, um, you know, I want people to embrace that and 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 understand it, and you know, give credit where credit's due, which is what I thought about your book. Like it's a, it's a real work of conviction. To you know, and I know I said this before, but Delay gratification. Do it when you don't feel like it. Burn pages when you don't mm-hmm. like them. You know, like it's something gargantuan. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the um, you know? And I feel like maybe I'm closing out some thoughts here, but like, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself having written? Did you say sixty thousand words? Ninety. Mm. Ninety words. It seems bigger than ninety words. <laughs> ninety thousand. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, ninety thousand. <laughs> that I reduced to eighty-one. I think. Okay, eighty-one thousand. Um, what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself in writing eighty-one thousand words? Well, people keep telling me, "Wow, you've done it." You know, you've you've proved to yourself that you've done it, and I don't really see it that way. I. Mm. <laughs> it's a really tough question to answer. What mm. have I learned about myself? I've learned that I can really hurt myself by <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But we talk about mental health and and, and today being a you okay day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it like as as I mentioned in version one, mm-hmm. it it did impact my mental health at the time, mm-hmm. and so uh, there, there's a natural reluctance for me to dive into the next piece of work mm-hmm. because it wasn't always healthy. Mm-hmm. Sitting in a room. And typing away at a, at a keyboard for hours and hours on end, mm-hmm. doing trying to spit out eight hundred words a day, um, is is not what your therapist is going to recommend to help mm-hmm. your mental health. It's not, mm-hmm. um, and often you would you know forgo you would forgo the you know the the necessary exercise and diet and stuff like that in order for you to 
punch out some decent material. Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant by saying when I said at the beginning I wouldn't recommend it. It's just it, you've just got to be really careful around um, how you manage your mental stability and your health, your mental health. Um, I, I don't mean mental stability. I mean mental strength mm-hmm. and resilience um, mm-hmm. while you're doing something that is mentally tiring. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, so you and I work in similar areas, you know, mm-hmm. in our day jobs and in, in our work, mm-hmm. and sometimes it can cost that similar kind of um, cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but writing something that you feel passionate about personally and you don't give a stuff about what other people think about it, mm-hmm. in other words, it really is a personal project. Mm-hmm. It can really tear you apart internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also spit out an amazing piece of work, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. something that you're really proud of. And that can be anything. That can be gardening. That can be sculpture. That can be mm-hmm. art. For, mm-hmm. for every person it's different. Mm-hmm where they feel they bleed into it. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, um, yeah, I, I really acknowledge that, that, um, to, 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 what does it, there's an expression, to create anything of meaning, you know, takes pain. There's, there's something, there's an expression there that I can't mm. quite get right, but, but I know that it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't just appear. No. You know, you can't just magic something. And, um, you know, aside from the, 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 the things you mentioned before, mentorship and, you know, and such of that, that list, I won't go over that again. I, I feel a bit about the same about what I'm doing now. It, I really, it really matters to me. And I think, again, as I've said, it's a creative endeavour. Mm. And, you know, almost, you know, I, I still take care of my kids and my partner, mm. I hope. But, but, but I, I'm sacrificing almost everything else that's periphery to the pursuit of this and i really and i'm and i don't mean like in a martyr like way i want to be your books about martyr or saint yes um but but i think the pursuit of something even if no one ever sees it pursuit of something that's a passion is still comes at a cost of other things yeah because anybody can just cruise and do nothing but not just anybody can create something. And, and I think that's a delayed gratification, which is, you know, again, all the way back to why I wanted to, to do this, because I, I really recognize the effort that goes into something. Like I see that because I, I'm in it. Please, if I can pray on Foy's bones right now, don't <laughs> let it take me 12 years. <laughs> is that how it works? I, what? <laughs> can, I pray, can I pray on Foy's bones from here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, but everything you just said is totally true. My, even my wife would attest to the fact that it, it cost her time. Oh. It cost her effort, mm. even though she wasn't involved. So, mm. yeah. Well, she, she was involved. She's part of that support network, right? You know, just, Yeah, she's my number one cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, well, she's got any spare time. She can be a cheerleader for Thunderlabs as well. <laughs> That's right. She's busy. <laughs> you can't afford her. <laughs> she's getting ready for you to write your next book. Mm. Okay. I feel like we've covered a lot. We didn't actually go into um, 1066 as much as I imagined, but I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, I feel like I've learned, you know, the parallels between creativity and book writing and business and, um, you know, and, you know, faith. I feel like there's so many themes that we're just scratching the surface Mm. of and the importance for, in, in the human condition to to believe in something more and bigger 
And um, I think that um, on that note, I might just make this recommendation to people listening. You should go and buy out, go and buy The Conquest of Foy by Mark McPherson. And I think there's one signed copy left in Dimmicks. Uh, there's only a few, not every Dimmicks is... Uh, Which Dimmicks? Holds it. Um, there's only a few, but uh, I think the best place to get it from is from Amazon or mm-hmm. Waterstones in the UK and Barnes & Noble in the US. Mm-hmm. And it's on um, Kindle Unlimited at the moment, isn't it? It is, certainly, and it'll stay there. Yeah, because yeah, I've got the hard copy. Uh, sorry, I've got the paperback and I've also got the mm. Kindle Unlimited version. And uh, depending on where I was, as you saw, I was trying to put myself... It's interesting that... <laughs> before I let everyone go, I was reading it when I was in the mountains by myself around a fire and that did something to bring out some of the, um, you know, the evocative feeling of, of wilderness. I mean, I was on my own yeah. and um, I was drinking mead from a goat's horn. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were. It is definitely a, a mystical kind of journey. So you were in the right place. All right. I'm going to press end on our recording, but Mark, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, enjoyed it too.